The American POTUS Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax-deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. On this episode of American POTUS, the very first political dark horse, James K. Polk. He paid his dues in state government and in the U.S. Congress before unexpectedly finding himself up for the top spot in the 1844 election. He went on to win and changed the makeup of the country quite literally from sea to shining sea. Expansion, war, banking, he even implemented the whole idea of the postage stamp. And he did it all in just four years. So why is he commonly known as the least known consequential president? The unknown overachiever, James K. Polk. Next on American POTUS. I'm Scott Brunn with the National Museum of American Presidents. With the help of presidential scholar Alan Lowe, we're opening the book on the men who have held our nation's highest office. In each episode, we'll tap into our nationwide cabinet of historians, authors, experts, and others to reveal the most compelling moments from these extraordinary patriots. Our guest for this episode on POTUS number 11 is Bob Mary. In addition to being the editor of National Interest, he's also been a correspondent for the Wall Street Journal and executive editor of the Congressional Quarterly. From time to time, you might see him on Meet the Press, Face the Nation, and Newsmakers. Bob is the author of several terrific history books, including A Country of Vast Designs, The Mexican War, and the Conquest of the American Continent. It examines the life and presidency of James Knox Polk the man we want to talk about today. Bob, thank you for joining us here on American POTUS. My, my pleasure. Bob, th- again, thank you so much. Well, I want to start just by looking at your interest in the presidency. What led to that interest, and, and then why did you decide to focus on James Polk? Well, ever since my childhood, I've had a passionate interest in American politics and American history, and you can't be interested in those two things without being interested in the presidency mm-hmm. and our presidents, because after all, we live in a presidential system uh, where the president holds a great deal of power and influence and prerogative. And so I've always been interested in uh, the presidency. I covered the White House when I was a Wall Street Journal reporter uh, during the Reagan years. uh, So I got a sense rather up close as to what it was really like there. Um, And I think that whetted my appetite for doing presidential biographies. And, And what led you to Polk? Oh, I have to say, um, I was writing, I still am writing for Simon Schuster, a wonderful publishing house. And my editor at that time was the late Alice Mayhew, who was legendary in publishing circles and had a marvelous uh, background and fascination and and, uh, deep understanding of American politics. Uh, And I have to say that it was Alice, after we collaborated on my second book, who suggested uh, that maybe I should look at the Mexican War. Mm -hmm. So I said to Alice, I said, well, I'm not a military historian. That's not my meat, uh, but I'm very interested in politics. And I know that was a very intense political time. Uh, So let me check out how I might go about framing that uh, book if we were to do it together. And uh, she liked what I came up with. And so it ended up being largely a Polk biography, but much more panoramic in its look at American expansionism in the 1840s, one of the great periods of American expansionism in our history. Well, I know I've told you I'm a big fan of the book. It's wonderfully done. I wonder, 
when you look at Polk and how consequential his presence he was, why does he not get more attention? Well, I've written on numerous occasions, including in the epilogue of the book, that Polk is kind of distinctive as a president because the controversies that dogged him during his time still dog him. Whereas, you know, Jefferson and Lincoln and uh, all the others, Jackson certainly, although he's, he's getting more and more dogged than ever. But these presidents were very controversial in their time. I mean, even the most successful presidents had at least 40% of the electorate against them. So over time, history has basically said, uh, well, we're going to look mostly at his good stuff and we're not going to concentrate on the bad things. But with Polk, it's not like that. And I think it's partly because of a certain attitude in the American liberal consciousness. And I use the word liberal in its expansive sense. Mm-hmm. Um, that is a little uncomfortable with wars that are fought strictly for American national self-interest and more interested in wars that are fought along human, you know, humanitarian ground. Mm-hmm. And Polk, didn't care about humanitarian grounds at all, particularly he was interested in American expansionism and creating transcontinental nation on both the Atlantic and the Pacific coast with wonderful harbors and railroads crisscrossing and, and opportunities to um, have huge amounts of trade uh, and influence and power in the world. And uh, so uh, I think that there's some, a lot of people, maybe particularly the literary types, we were a little uncomfortable with that. Well, it's certainly hard to imagine the country in any other way. You tell that story so well in a country of vast designs. But before we, we jump more into the specifics of his times, his presidency, let's talk a bit about his personality. He had a very stern personality. The photos we have of him later in life are downright uh, imposing. So if we met him on the street right now, what would that interaction be like with him? Well, I have said when I was traveling around the country uh, promoting my book and um, worked up a number of speeches that I could tailor for a particular audience, in all of those speeches, I uh, said after describing him, and I'll get back to describing him, mm-hmm. I said, so consequently, if all of us, there might be 150 people in the room, were in a bar one night uh, <laughs> drinking and having a good time, somebody might notice Jimmy Polk over there at the end of the bar drinking by himself. And the question might come up, should we invite him over so he's not uh, drinking alone? Probably the answer would be no. <laughs> because James Polk was not a very fun guy to be around. He yeah. took himself very seriously. He took everything very seriously, which was part of his success quotient. Mm-hmm. But uh, he wasn't friendly. He didn't particularly like people. He liked politics. He liked mobilizing people, but he didn't really like hanging out with them very much. There's an entry in his diary, which is sort of interesting. There was uh, some event, I can't remember what it was, but some event in the White House, and he's always working at his desk, his table, as he called it. And uh, he was called down, you know, coming down, you're going to see these uh, these jugglers or these circus people, or I don't remember what it was, (laughs) but everybody seemed to be enjoying it. He goes back and writes in his diary, total waste of time. I don't know why I even went there. And that was, that was Polk, and that's why we wouldn't invite him over for a drink. drink well, how in the world did he prosper then in politics? He was so successful in politics. How did he do that and not, not be able to enjoy interacting with people? It, occasionally, in our history, we have seen the rise of people who weren't really very political, who lacked 
certain crucial political skills. <clears throat> Richard Nixon is certainly one, and James Polk is another. Uh, I would say that um, that uh, Zachary Taylor is a good example of that. Different yeah. different personality quirks and limitations. Um, but Nixon and Polk are not that dissimilar, except that uh, Polk was a somewhat sanctimonious guy, mm-hmm. and he and Nixon shared the sort of inability to make small talk and connect with people, which is a politician's, you know, goal, yeah. which you have to have in your pocket at all times. Um, but what he had, what he did have was a relentless determination to get done what he set out for himself to do. Mm-hmm. And he never quit. He worked, he worked himself uh, horrendously. And I, you could argue, we'll maybe get to this at the end here, but yeah. you could argue that he worked himself to death. Yeah, very um, true. And uh, I think that's what made him so uh, effective. He also was very analytical. In addition to having to being a man of vision, he had an analytical skill that allowed him to understand people. Didn't like him very much, but he understood what motivated him, what drove them, and how to get them to do what he wanted them to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he put all those things together, and he put together a four-year presidency, and it ends up being a very consequential period. Yes. I will say, though, at least Nixon did appear on Laugh-In, if you remember correctly. So I can't, I can't, say, I can't see Polk doing that. So you know, Polk, Polk never went to Laugh-In. <laughs> right. <laughs> so uh, Polk was obviously a disciple of Andrew Jackson, so much so that Polk was called Little Hickory. How did they become connected in the first place, and how did they support each other? Well, they were connected by uh, family and class. Um, the Polk family had uh, become quite prosperous and successful in the Nashville area, Columbia, Tennessee, near Nashville. And, of course, Jackson dominated the politics and society of, uh, of Tennessee. Uh, and Polk was uh, substantially uh, younger, I think about 20 years younger than, uh, than Jackson. But he grew up knowing Jackson, and Jackson, you know, they would go to these parties and these functions where the high and the mighty of Tennessee would uh, would uh, hobnob and rub elbows. And Jackson took a liking to him. I think he saw the steely determination, and he liked that. Mm-hmm. And uh, Polk revered Jackson. So it was a classic uh, mentor-protege relationship, and Jackson advised him on everything, how to get into politics, what to do, who to marry. He really urged him to marry uh, Sarah, uh, who became his bride. Uh, And if Jackson suggested it was a good idea, Polk did it, so he married her. It turned out to be a very good marriage. Oh, very successful. A very very good move on on James Polk's part. Sarah was an amazing woman. Yes, she was. The personality of Jackson and Polk, were they similar personalities? My impression of Jackson had been maybe he was a bit more of people person or able to interact with people perhaps better than Polk was. Yeah, he was a rambunctious character. Yeah. And it, Jackson was really kind of two personalities in one because in the frontier or um, out on a military campaign, he could be really harsh and hard and hard-bitten and, and hard-nosed. But in polite society, he was very courtly and gentlemanly. So they were sort of alike in that sense because Polk was very conventional in terms of mores and attitudes and views and Polk ways. But no, he didn't have he he didn't have the personality, the large personality that Jackson had. I describe him in the book as a smaller than life figure with larger than life ambitions. Mm-hmm. I think that captures him. Whereas Jackson was a larger than life figure. 
but I have to say that while Jackson had big ambitions and understood the importance of American expansionism, he didn't grab the, the bow in the same way that uh, Polk did mm-hmm. uh, when uh, Texas got its independence from Mexico. Uh, and some people were saying we should annex Texas. Uh, Jackson held back because uh, he was afraid that was going to lead to a war with Mexico, which it probably would have, which it ultimately did under Polk. And he didn't want that to um, interrupt his domestic uh, plans and and, uh, and goals. They were alike in their outlook and in their sensibilities, but they were not alike in their personalities. Speaking of Texas, um, we can jump to the 1844 presidential race. And as you noted in the book, Polk had a very successful political career, including service as Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives, but he had lost twice in a row to be reelected as governor of Tennessee. So what led him in 1844 to throw his uh, name in uh, for the presidential race? Uh, actually, he was running so, for vice president, and he was desperate. Um, he, he was a man on the move, uh, and he had the great the benefit of being a protege of Andrew Jackson and the Democrats dominated American politics. But you got to remember that Jackson's immediate successor was Martin Van Buren, who was also a protege of Jackson from New York. And under Van Buren, we descended into the panic of 1837. And that was a pretty bad recession. Even you could call it a depression. And that hurt Democrats a lot. Uh, it hurt Van Buren. He lost the presidency as a result. And it hurt uh, Polk. So he runs for governor. He didn't really want to. He liked being in Congress. But uh, they said out in Tennessee, we need you, Congressman. We need you to run because we don't have anyone else that can you know, preserve our standing in the state in the middle of this recession. So he did. And he ran against a uh, country bumpkin who was really kind of a jokester by the name of James Jones, leading Jimmy Jones, they called him. <laughs> and he was a very funny guy. And he just kind of made fun of Polk. Polk didn't quite know how to handle that since he took himself so seriously. At one point, he suggested that, that lean Jimmy Jones belonged more in the circus than a gubernatorial <laughs> campaign. And lean Jimmy said, you're right, Governor. You're right, the Congressman. Well, he had been governor, so, so yeah. he was governor. Yeah. Um, he was running for re-election. And uh, he said, um, we both belong in the circus. I would be the clown, of course. And you would be the little guy in the red, in the red jacket riding on the pony. <laughs> and everybody laughs. And Pope doesn't have an answer to that. Right, right. So, Lee and Jimmy knocks him out. And he's no longer governor. And he has no standing. So those were two-year terms. So he ran again in two years. And Lee and Jimmy Jones knocked him out again. And uh, so now he looked like he was basically finished. If he went back to Congress, it would look like he was just basically acknowledging that he couldn't get beyond that stage. If he ran for statewide office, well, he just basically defeated twice for statewide office. So he didn't really have a lot of options. <clears throat> he decided that the best thing for him to do would be to try to get the vice presidential not. He thought maybe, he thought for sure that Van Buren would probably be the nominee again to run again and get his old seat back. So he smuggled up to Van Buren, but Van Buren thought he was kind of damaged goods. So he came very aloof and standoffish. So here he was running for vice president and it didn't look like anybody really wanted him on their ticket, uh, but he never gave up. That was a Polk hallmark. Then we can get to this, but Texas, the annexation of Texas galvanized the nation in a very powerful way, very, very quickly in the middle of that campaign year. And Van Buren got himself on the wrong side of that issue, as did Henry Clay, the Whig. And Polk was on the right side of the issue. 
And so he ended up with the presidential nomination at the convention in Baltimore. I think it was the 11th ballot uh, where he finally emerged as the first dark horse. And where does that term come from? You know, that's a good question. I should know the answer to that. And it's just such a great <laughs> question that. of American political arcana. Uh, but I don't. I don't know what dark horse, uh, how, that, how that emerged. I'm going to look I, that I, up. I expect it has to do with horse racing. <laughs> right. But I don't know. For for our American POTUS listeners, stay tuned. In a future episode, I'll have that answer, I'm sure. So, <laughs> that election was very close. He defeated his opponent, Henry Clay, by just 40,000 votes, taking 15 states to Clay's 11. Can you talk a bit about that election, how close it was, and what effect, if any, that had on Polk's ability to govern once he took office? The, the panic of 1837 had, had sort of jiggled up uh, American politics and had destroyed Van Buren's presidency in 1840. And it was things were getting better under the Whigs. The Whigs elected in 1840 William Henry Harrison, but he died in office. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we ended up with John Tyler, who was only a kind of a quasi-Whig, uh, which split the Whig party and created a lot of animosity and turmoil within the party, which didn't help. But Henry Clay was a giant of his time, uh, and he was a wonderful guy. He was an amazing character. He, I, I like to say that he had this ability to sort of slyly charm people while he also slyly manipulated them into doing everything that he wanted them to do. He was very, very charming, but there was always a um, there was always something that he was looking for at the end of his very amazing abilities to charm. Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly, yes. one could argue when he charmed women because he was quite, <laughs> yeah. uh, he was quite a womanizer for his time. But uh, if Henry Clay had embraced Texas annexation when John Tyler brought it forward through uh, silent, quiet negotiations with the Texans and then announced, came out in the middle of uh, the summer of um, the spring, 1844, and it galvanized the country. People like this idea. This is amazing. You look at all the territory and we'd be moving west and we'd be moving in the right direction. And the Texans seemed to be very interested. But Clay and Van Buren both suggested two problems. Number one, it likely would lead to a war with Mexico. Right about that. And it would exacerbate the slavery issue. They were right on both counts. They were. But the American people didn't care about that particularly. So if Clay had embraced the Texas annexation, he clearly would have become president. And we wouldn't be talking about James Polk today. But he was very standoffish about it. And uh, so he lost. And, and as you say, fewer than 40,000 votes. It was just it mm-hmm. was amazingly close. I think we're, we're uh, hoping in the future to do an episode on American POTUS about kind of wannabes for the office of the presidency. And certainly Henry Clay's at the top of that list. I think, didn't he run four times? I think if I'm remembering correctly. And each time uh, just missed his final final goal, the presidency. Okay, with that. Yeah, He's one of my favorite characters um, in American history. (laughs) He was uh, endlessly fascinating and uh, amusing and entertaining, as well as a powerful force politically. Before we get into POTUS number 11's four big goals, a quick note about you getting in touch with us here at American POTUS. We're always happy to see your comments or suggestions about this episode or any others. Simply visit AmericanPOTUS.com or send us a note on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And while you're there on your favorite social platform, we'd appreciate it if you spread the word about the podcast. 
So Polk, Polk's elected. He famously says he's going to serve only one term, and he laid out four big goals, all of which he accomplished. And today I'm, we want to focus on the war with Mexico, but want to briefly outline for our listeners what the other three areas were that Polk said he was going to tackle, and he did attack. He did tackle in his very eventful administration. So first, he said he would resolve once and for all the ongoing issue of the government's finances and the role or lack thereof of a national bank, which had been such a big debate over the years. Can you outline for our listeners how he did that? Yeah, I'd have to do a little bit of background if I could. Please. Um, the question of maintaining currency stability was something that we only had a kind of crude understanding of how to do that how to maintain stability of a currency and also protect and preserve governmental monies. And the answer on the Whig Party or the earlier Federalist Party um, under people like Alexander Hamilton and John Adams was the Bank of the U.S., a national bank uh, that would um, maintain uh, stability and would also be the custodian, if you will, of federal monies. Of course, the um, Jeffersonians and later the Jacksonians felt that that was too significant and too powerful a concentration of economic power in the country. And they opposed the bank from the very beginning. And the first bank was allowed to lapse because the Jeffersonians basically dominated politics. In the War of 1812, the Federalists of New England um, were pretty much against the war and they hoarded uh, the species of gold and silver, uh, which led to a wave of inflation elsewhere as uh, paper money was printed to make up for the difference. And so then it became clear that, well, we, maybe we need that bank after all. So there was a second bank of the United States and Jackson killed it. And I won't go into all the details, but he basically killed it. And it was, it was a very controversial. It's hard to imagine how powerful that issue was for that time. Well, in killing it, the Second Bank of the U.S. had become a corrupt institution. And so it was understandable that he had some political force at his back when he did that. But that still left the significant question about, okay, well, where is where are federal money is going to reside and how can we protect, how can the government protect that and maintain stability both in terms of trade and in terms of internal trade? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he created what was called the independent treasury, which was designed to create a governmental, the bank was a kind of a quasi-governmental slash private sector entity. And the independent treasury was a purely governmental organization, financial organization designed to do those things that I was talking about. And it was, you could argue that I've never heard anyone really dispute this, but the, the, the independent treasury was a kind of a forerunner to the Fed because it was a very crude, we didn't have much of an understanding of these things then. And it was a rather crude institution in terms of doing what it was set out to do. But nevertheless, it was a significant accomplishment. Kind of related to that, the, the second thing he said he would take on is the, the issue of tariffs. And that also, the, the, uh, the use of tariffs had been a big debate in the country, as it is now. What did he do in terms of tariffs? Well, Polk was probably the greatest free trade president we've ever had. He reduced tariffs to a greater extent uh, than any other president. And so I've written a biography of the greatest 
free trade president. And then I also wrote a biography of William McKinley, who was probably the greatest protectionist president. Mm. So I had to get myself mired in this whole trade thing over the course of uh, these projects. But in any case, he believed that if you just sort of get out of the way, same kind of arguments you hear today, get out of the way, let the market do its job, free trade really worked. Uh, Britain was moving towards free trade with the Corn Laws in the mm -hmm. 1840s, same time period. And um, we don't really need these protective tariffs to um, um, aid and, and abet the big corporations in America in, in the beginning of manufacturing. Well, how did it work? Um, so how, how was the economy? Did, did, that, did that have the effect he wanted it to have? I think it had the effect initially. I'm going back to that period right now for a project I'm getting just getting into. And my understanding is that at the, at, by, by 1848, the economy was beginning to, um, to stumble a bit. Uh, so it's hard to say what, what, the, what that free trade regimen really did in terms of um, aiding the economy or over time. So the, the third big issue he addressed was the question of the control of the Oregon Territory, which was also claimed by our old enemy, Great Britain. Now, our listeners should know that the Oregon Territory was much larger than what the, just the state of Oregon is today. The territory in contention in Polk's time included areas that would become Oregon, Washington State, Idaho, as well as parts of Montana and Wyoming. So how did Polk approach the British on resolving the claims to the Northwest and I must admit, in reading your book, I was amazed at his ability to play uh, hardball with them. He must have been a really good poker player. Yeah, he was gutsy on that one, I'll have to say. Uh, actually, Oregon Territory was all what you described. It It also went up into Canada, but it was now oh, yeah. Canada, right. was then Canada, uh, all the way up to the um, Alaska border. Mm -hmm. At that time, it was the Russian border. Mm -hmm. So all of British Columbia and some of the uh, upper north of Canada and probably parts of Alberta were also part of Oregon Territory. So the question was, both America and the Brits had legitimate claims to the territory, and they had come together to sort of a situation of amity to say, look, we're going to have to settle this thing, and it's a question of drawing a line, and we know that. Uh, but in the meantime, let's uh, let's just jointly occupy or jointly administer this land, this territory, which wasn't very very populated. Americans ultimately, through these efforts at negotiation over the course of something like 20 years, uh, had said, well, basically, why don't we just take the line of the 49th parallel, which goes from the Lake of the Woods in Minnesota to the Rocky Mountains, and why don't we just extend that line westward all the way to the Pacific Ocean? And the Brits said, uh, well, that's a good start, um, but let's go, let's extend that line to the Columbia River, and then we'll go down the Columbia River to the sea, and everything north of that would be Brits, and everything south of that would be American. So the Brits are saying, we'll take Puget Sound, we'll take mm -hmm. um, San Juan Islands, you know, we'll take probably the mouth of the Columbia River, and Americans basically said no. So when Pope was elected, he said in his inaugural address, our claim to all of Oregon, which meant all the way up to Alaska, is clear and definitive or worse than that effect. And the Brits went crazy. <laughs> Times of London, those are war words, and he can't, you know, who, who does he think he is? He's basically saying that we're not going to negotiate anymore. So he basically said, okay, fine. If they want make, that's my opening gambit. If they want to make a proposal, I'll, I'll listen to it. But I'm not going to negotiate with myself. 
So yeah. the Brits went crazy, as I say, <laughs> but they had other problems. They had uh, their, they were, they had a lot of political turmoil going on with regard to the reform movement and the free trade corn laws and a lot of other things. Ultimately, they said, uh, look, uh, can we go back to the 49th parallel? And Polk himself, I don't think it was original to him, but he projected to the Brits that here's, a, here's, here's my compromise. We'll go across at the 49th parallel, but when we get to the Strait of Juan de Fuca, we'll go, we'll let the line go down south around the southern tip of Vancouver Island, and you can have all of Vancouver Island, because why do you want to split an island? So that broke the ice. The negotiation ended, and and it was a good deal for all sides, I think. And you're right, Polk was he was very steely because there was a lot of there was a lot of um, martial talk going on coming from the Brits and coming in America too. Four fifty four forty or fight yeah. was basically saying we're not going to give up any of that. And uh, Polk actually paid a bit of a political price among the expansionist when he basically gave up that territory north of the 49th parallel, but it was a smart move and it worked out fine. Turning to the war with Mexico, uh, we know that in that war we took a vast amount of formerly Mexican territory. We eventually occupied Mexico City. We forced the Mexican government to sell for a low price the areas of our nation that today make up the states of California, Nevada, and most of Arizona, New Mexico, Utah, Colorado. And as you said at the beginning of this uh, discussion, many today take kind of a dim view of our role in that war. But I thought your book gave a more nuanced view of the buildup to and causes of the war, including the fascinating back and forth between the Polk administration and Santa Ana. Can you explain for our listeners how you view the causes of this very consequential war? And do you think the war was inevitable given our movement westward? Yeah, I, I think that the territory we got as a result of the Mexican War, now more and more people are calling it the uh, Mexican-American War, I think that territory was not sustainable under Mexican rule. Mexico, we have to sort of concede, was a pretty dysfunctional country at that time during that period. And it was not growing financially, economically, uh, demographically. It's one of the reasons that they invited all those um, Americans, uh, U.S. people into uh, Texas because they weren't sure they were going to be able to maintain uh, custodianship of Texas they didn't have enough people in, in Texas. So the Americans flocked in there and pretty soon they began to get a little bit worried about it and they began to try to try to control uh, those people who had their own mores and attitudes and, and um, culture. So the Texans in the 30s uh, declared their independence. Santa Ana went um, up uh, with an army uh, to put down the rebellion and he this typical happened with um, Santa Ana. He was a man of great bluster and brilliant bluster, but he, he never seemed to win when the chips were down militarily. So he lost. Texans signed a treaty, forced the treaty signing on the part of Santa Ana, right, pretty much on the battlefield. So the Texas, so the Mexicans never really accepted the loss of Texas, but they couldn't do anything about it. And more and more countries, mostly Western countries, recognized Texas as an independent nation. And there it stood for about 10 years. As I say, Andrew Jackson was interested in American expansionism, but he saw this as a kind of a, you know, he didn't want to get his fingers burned by um, uh, annexing Texas uh, and ending up in a war with Mexico, because Mexico would view that as a basically a hostile act. 
So let me back up on, there's another issue that was sort of percolating around this time. It had to do with what I'll call reparations. Being a dysfunctional country, Mexico didn't do a very good job of controlling either its, many of its governmental officials and other private citizens in their dealings with foreigners. And many foreigners were abused. They were abused financially. Some of them were kidnapped. There were actually some killings. And over the years, uh, these episodes led to a demand for reparations on the part of the individuals involved and the, and the nations involved. And this is the part of the story that the anti-Polk people never want to talk about. They ignore. So France basically attacked Mexico. They sent a bunch of Marines into Veracruz and bombarded Veracruz. Santa Ana went down there with an army, but uh, he really couldn't dislodge them. And so they paid up their reparations to France. Santa Ana, by the way, lost his leg in that those skirmishes, which he promptly buried in a in a ceremony, like you might do your dog or something. But anyway, <laughs> he, so and Britain Britain threatened to do the same thing. So the Mexicans paid up, but they wouldn't pay up to America because they didn't think that they needed to. You know, great nations don't allow other nations to abuse their citizens with abandon, and that's essentially what had happened. So those negotiations have been going on, and the two com- committees of Congress, the House Committee and the Senate Committee, have both looked into it. They both basically said that we would be justified in resorting to war to get these reparations, but Jackson said at the end of his presidency, no, no, I think we need to give our friends down there just you know another chance. And so they negotiated something, but the money wasn't coming because the money wasn't available. So now Texas has been annexed, and it's and, and the annexation occurred during both the Tyler and the Polk administration. So it, it was done during Polk. And Mexico immediately withdrew its diplomats and its ambassador and broke off relations with the United States and said that this was an example of hostility towards Mexico. Essentially, they said it was an act of war. Now, that's a far-fetched thing because Texas was an independent nation by all rights of international law, and America certainly had the right to annex it if the Texans wanted to be annexed, which they ultimately did. And then meanwhile, you had these reparations. So Polk hit upon this idea, a brilliant idea. He said, look, they owe us millions of dollars, or they owe these citizens millions of dollars. I'll pay off our citizens. I think it ended up being at $3.5 million, something like that. I'll pay off the citizens in exchange for some territory. And that was sort of the concept that he was hoping that could lead to a solution short of war. But the Mexicans were proud people, and they weren't about to uh, succumb to this kind of pressure. And uh, so they basically said no, and they were very bellicose. So then Pope made a fateful decision. And here we have to get into another, I hope I'm not going too long here, but no, please. we have to get into another aspect of this. There was a dispute of territory between Texas and Mexico, the land between the Rio Grande and the Nueces River. And Mexicans said that they they owned the land beyond the Rio Grande to the Nueces. And Texas said, no, we, we had we had uh, representatives in our assembly from that territory. It wasn't very populated, but they did. And we we won that little territory just like we did all the rest of the territory by force of arms. And, and you signed it off. But that, nevertheless, that was in dispute. So Polk, his fateful decision, he sent an army under... Zachary Taylor, to the Rio Grande, parked it right across from the little town of Matamoros, still exists, across the Rio Grande, and put cannon up and basically was saying, 
were going to defend this territory. Recognizing that it was disputed territory and that dispute had to be settled somehow, but Polk was not, in the meantime, going to give it up or cede it or let the Mexicans go in there and put their army in there because then it was going to be that much harder to negotiate what he wanted to negotiate. So when the when Mexico, the Mexican army on the other side, much larger than what Zachary Taylor had, sent a um, raiding party or a reconnaissance party, whatever, across the Rio Grande and attacked a group of American soldiers, uh, killed a bunch and, and, and captured a bunch more. And that was the precipitating event. That's when Polk said they have shed American blood on the American soil. Now, he was castigated for that because it was disputed soil. But he said, okay, it's disputed, but I'm saying it's American soil. <laughs> right. um, uh, but he was he was hit very hard on that and still is. Uh, but anyway, that's that's basically what precipitated the war. And, and it's not a simple thing. It's not just, you know, America feeling its oats, you know, put on its boots and and stretched out its arms in the morning and decided to take over Mexican territory. It wasn't that simple. During your discussion of that, you mentioned Zachary Taylor, and I, I love the part of your book where you talk about the relationship of Taylor and Polk, and then later with Scott. It's almost like a soap opera of how that goes back and forth, truly complicated interactions as the war progressed. Can you just comment a bit on the relationship of President Polk with Zachary Taylor and with Winfield Scott? Well, it was a terrible relationship on the part of three flawed men. Zachary Taylor was a very unimaginative character, strong views on simple things, which he held very strongly. He had very little intellectual curiosity. He was only really interested in things that affected him directly. And militarily, what I would say about him after studying his military exploits in, um, in Mexico was that through some really questionable decision-making, sort of battlefield strategic decisions, he got himself into these horrendous situations. And then through his tactical brilliance and his refusal to ever give up, he managed to get out of those situations. And he drove Santa Ana crazy because Santa Ana thought he had him on more than one occasion, and uh, he didn't. Polk we've talked about, uh, and then the other general, um, Winfield Scott, uh, he was a man of huge ego, one of the biggest military egos in our history. He was also a military genius. So Polk initially sent Zachary Taylor into Mexico from Matamoros there. He went in, he invaded Mexico. But it was very difficult because of terrain, largely, to move from that place, that location, that territory of Mexico, to Mexico City. Now, Polk thought that this would be a short war. The Mexicans would see that they couldn't really, they really couldn't handle the American military and that they would sue for peace. And then he'd be able to negotiate what he was looking for, which was, we'll pay you money and we'll take care of the reparations and you give us territory. He particularly wanted California. So he thought that uh, Taylor would be able to do the job by moving inexorably south into Mexico, which he did, up to a point where it was going to be more and more difficult for him to do that. So then he uh, gave Winfield Scott the command to take an army and do an amphibious landing uh, at Veracruz and move towards Mexico City on the same route that Cortez had used when he invaded Mexico in the 1500s. Scott proved himself to be, as I say, a truly brilliant military man. 
in maneuvering. Every, in Santa Ana tried to thwart him along the route in various places where where Santa Ana had all the territorial and uh, terrain advantages, but Scott outfought him uh, every step of the way. So uh, we ended up all the way in Mexico City. Now, the proud Mexicans could just not negotiate. They wouldn't surrender. They wouldn't negotiate. So we were sort of stuck. And by this time, Polk's standing in political popularity was plummeting because people were beginning to see uh, that this war was going on and on and it wasn't getting settled and we didn't know when we was going to get settled or if it was going to settle or out. So Pope was by this time pretty desperate to get some kind of a, a negotiated settlement. Uh, then he almost blew that one, uh, which we can talk about, but nevertheless, ultimately, uh, we were able to get uh, the kind of outcome that Pope was ultimately and, and initially looking for. In that vein, he sent Nicholas Trist to negotiate, but then he recalls Trist. Trist ignores that and negotiates the treaty that ends the war. So then the president's faced with, do I accept a treaty negotiated by a man I've recalled, or do I continue the war? Yeah, and uh, yeah, a little backstory there. So Trist goes to Mexico, and Trist is another flawed character. And he, he comes into Mexico, and he, he treats Scott like a like a handmaiden, you know, I, I, I'm here to negotiate this thing. I'll let you know uh, when the time is for you to stop fighting, et cetera, et cetera. And Scott goes crazy. This man who, as I say, has this gigantic ego and always protecting his sense of self. And so he goes crazy. So they hate each other. Then Scott gets sick and, and uh, Tris sends him a jar of guava jam. It turns out to be his favorite. They become fast friends. And they have something else in common. They both hate Polk. So now they're in cahoots. They're they're in a conspiracy. And Polk gets very nervous. Polk, you know, Scott's a Whig, and Polk doesn't trust Whigs. And he realizes that these guys are going to get so much fame and accolades that they're going to be able to run for president. And maybe that's going to be harmful to the Democratic Party. It's, his party, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's a potential scandal, which I won't go into in great detail, but there was a question of whether they had been willing to sort of pay for uh, a settlement. And uh, so Polk angrily withdraws, recalls uh, Trist, as you say. But Trist at that time, after uh, another thing that made uh, um, Polk upset was that Trist seemed to be offering terms that were beyond what Polk had authorized. So he, he, so he recalled. Uh, Trist began to see the prospect of a breakthrough in the negotiations that would give Polk what he initially said he wanted. So he did it. And when it came back, Polk was so upset. Typical Polk was so upset that he wasn't sure he wanted to accept it. But cooler heads had to prevail, including Polk's own head when it cooled down. <laughs> and he saw that uh, he had to get this war over with or it was going to destroy the party. And so he did, and uh, it was a it was a signal, very significant march on the road to America as it is today. And it also was an, a significant step towards civil war, as we discussed a bit earlier. Uh, as we added that territory, the divisions hardened over slave versus free for those new territories. What were Polk's views on the institution of slavery, and did he understand? that those divisions were so deep that in the end civil war could perhaps result? No, he was 
he was morally obtuse on slavery. He was a slaveholder himself, and uh, he was a Southern guy and, and uh, had Southern sensibilities about all that. Some of the Polk critics have suggested that it was all about slavery, that Polk wanted to expand American territory so that he could expand slavery. Sean Wilentz of uh, Princeton and I agree that that was not the case. If you read Polk's diary, which he kept during his presidency, most of his presidency, there's no evidence of that whatsoever. And there's like four volumes, each one, I think, 500 pages. So there's 2,000 pages of diary printed up here. And if you scour it, like I had to do, uh, you would see that that wasn't what was motivating him at all. It was American expansionism. Mm -hmm. Um, But to him, slavery was like this side issue that complicated things unnecessarily. If the North would just let the South alone and the South could could, uh, just have slavery where it existed, and then there was the question of maybe the Missouri Compromise line at 36, 30, 36 degrees, 30, whatever, uh, that could be extended to the West the Pacific Ocean, maybe that would be a solution. Mm-hmm. Um, but he didn't He didn't have the imagination to understand that this was going to roil the country like nothing ever had, which, it, of course, is what happened. Yeah. It really happened in the middle of Polk's effort to get a $3 million appropriation so that he could sort of use that as a down payment to begin negotiations with Santa Ana. Santa Ana had hinted to Polk through an intermediary that that would maybe lubricate um, the possibility of a settlement. Who should rise up with this freshman congressman from Pennsylvania, David Wilmot, who put forth the Wilmot proviso, which basically said no territory captured or acquired through this war uh, can be slaved, and the Congress is going to prevent that. Well, the Southerners went crazy, uh-huh. and the Northerners were were galvanized because um, more and more people were getting more and more uncomfortable with having slavery in our country at all. Uh, and so, yes, you're absolutely right. It roiled the country. Um, it made slavery almost an impossible issue to resolve. And almost immediately, that issue took hold of America and grabbed hold of it and kept hold of it uh, until it was finally settled through war. We'll talk about Polk's famously discreet personal life in just a bit. But first, a quick reminder to send us a note and let us know what you think of this or any other episode. You can reach us at AmericanPOTUS.com, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And while you're there, be sure to like or follow our page for upcoming features and announcements. Thanks. So let's, let's switch gears here for a minute and go back to Sarah Polk. We, we mentioned her earlier, truly an incredible woman. What, what can you tell us about their relationship and how did she approach the role of first lady? Well, um, I have to say there's a, a woman at the um, University of Pennsylvania, I believe, uh, Amy Greenberg. Yes. Who wrote a recent biography of Sarah Polk. And she also wrote a previous book that was really, really harsh on uh, James Polk, mm-hmm. uh, in, especially in her interpretation of the Mexican War. I didn't agree with that book entirely, but I haven't read the one on Sarah Polk, um, but I would urge uh, listeners to um, look for that if they're interested in Sarah Polk, because I'm sure that she did a very good job of, of bringing to life this person. She was very vivacious, unlike mm-hmm. James, and uh, she was charming and very smart and savvy, 
And so she ended up being a very significant advisor to her husband. And he didn't have a lot of advisors because he didn't create that kind of relationship with people. He didn't have acolytes or people around him that were devoted to him, which may be one of the reasons why he didn't have the kinds of early biographies that a lot of presidents get that help set their reputations for posterity. But nevertheless, she was a, a real solid, not just a wife, um, but a real solid uh, political advisor. So when, when Polk left after his one term and came back to Tennessee, he was dead what some three months later. It's always appeared to me, and we mentioned this earlier, that perhaps he had simply worked himself to death. Is that is that your feeling? On I know we had a, a great quote that we found, uh, no president who performs his duties faithfully and conscientiously can have any leisure. Polk said that. Is that, is that what led to him dying just three months after, after leaving Washington? Well, it's speculative. He, mm-hmm. It was clear that his health was deteriorating very significantly in the later stages of his uh, presidency. And, uh, but I, I think, I think there's a, a, a strong suggestion that he ultimately died of cholera. Um, but I think that if he did, or whatever he died of, his resistance to disease and to anything of that nature would have been severely curtailed and hurt um, because of his habits of just working all the time mm-hmm. and working himself yeah. endlessly, late into the night, early in the morning, all day, every day. Uh, he just never relented, and he didn't give himself much in the way of leisure. He went on a few trips, but uh, not much. And, uh, yeah, I think he did. I think he did work himself to death. Bob, I know you've written other terrific books on the presidency, including a, a terrific uh, biography of President McKinley, another volume I just finished called Where They Stand on Rating the Presidents. I enjoyed that immensely. What is next for you? Well, I'm, I'm working on now in the beginning stages. I have a contract with my publisher, Simon Schuster, to do a book, which is kind of a sequel to the Pope book, because it's a book about the 1850s. It's not a biography. Um, there's a lot of biography in it, a lot of people and personalities and political drama, human drama. But that was the period where after Polk and after slavery came to the fore, uh, where America struggled uh, with what seemed like irreconcilable differences and and animosities and even hatreds and fears. And uh, I'm fascinated by how that unfolded. So I've got an approach to looking at the decade of the 50s uh, the, the road to war that I think will maybe bring it to life. And uh, the publisher, my publisher, thinks that maybe it can work. So we'll see what happens. I'm, I'm getting into it, and I'm getting, uh, I'm getting more and more excited about it. Wonderful! I, I can't wait to read that. And certainly, um, the, the role of Lincoln in the '50s. So you see him during the Mexican War taking a stance against it as a young congressman. You think his career is over because his constituency in Illinois wondered what the heck is he doing. They were generally supportive, and he thought his national political career was over. And then you see in the late 50s him coming back to the fore because of the issue of slavery. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that it'll, it'll, it'll stand on its own feet nicely. Nice. Well, Bob, we'd like to give our listeners a look into the personal side of our featured POTUS in each episode. Are you willing to help us out with a little American POTUS quick fire? Shoot. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and Alan, you jump in too, you know, because oh, you, know, you, you know stuff. <laughs> 
Has it, so Bob, past or present, other than his buddy Andrew Jackson, of course, who do you think his favorite president would be? Well, that's a great question. I have to say, I think it would be Harry Truman from a border state, um, very much of a sort of rough-hewn, um, but very plain-spoken fellow, uh, seemed to have a, a ultimately a great deal of common sense. So, yeah, I, I would say maybe he would, he would go for Truman. So he was famously a Democrat. Would he still be a Democrat today, or would he be a Republican in today's Democrat oh. and Republican parties? Yeah, no, I think the Democrats of 1840s or the Jackson era um, were more like Republicans of today than they were like Democrats of today. And I think that's been the case for a long time. Do you have a favorite quote of Polk? Well, I've invoked it, and it only not because it's uh, so brilliant, but because it's so politically powerful, and it, it, it just it's, it was like poking a, um, a hornet's nest <laughs> when he said they have shed American blood on the American soil. I mean, very few presidents have said anything that provocative and audacious uh, that drove events thereafter to the same extent. Sounds like something Andrew Jackson would have said. Yeah. He probably learned that from his, from Andrew. Uh, what, what would you say his most impressive skill was? Well, I would say it's his steely resolve. But I was talking about how he just never gave up. Uh, he was just absolutely determined to get what he wanted. And uh, that saved him. I mean, that made him. He didn't have what Lyndon Johnson had and his ability to cajole people and browbeat them and make them feel uh, vulnerable, but at the same time feel like they needed to make this guy happy. All that he didn't have, he didn't have any of those political skills at all. But he had that steely resolve, and I think that got him through. Did he have any bad habits, like anything that made him a little more human, if you will? (laughs) 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 Or is that a whole episode on itself? (laughs) No, I mean, you know, I I don't, I don't think he chased women. I don't think he drank uh, to excess at all. Um, He he didn't uh, play poker. Uh, He didn't stay up late at night and carouse with his pals. Um, He just worked. And on that point, I mean, he he was a workaholic, right? So what, but did he have fun? What did he do for fun? I'm not not aware of any hobbies. Um, The diary doesn't uh, manifest any hobbies that sort of kept him going or things that uh, were diversions that he would go to from time to time to keep himself sane or balanced. Uh, he just didn't seem to have anything like that. So he may have, but I'm, I'm not aware of it. That's nothing documented for wow. sure. Wow. He was That's a hard, hard, he worked, hard. he worked for fun. That's what he did. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. The other thing, you know, people like this, there's, there's a martyr complex that you see in his diary too. You know, he, it wasn't like he, it wasn't like he always loved it. He didn't work because he loved it. Yeah. Uh, he sometimes felt like everybody is making it hard for me and it's not fair and here I am and I'm struggling but I'm getting it done and why are they treating me like this and so it was a martyr quality to this whole thing that was not very attractive. Well, Bob, thank you so much. We've really enjoyed this conversation with you about James Polk. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on American POTUS. It's been my pleasure. I enjoyed talking to you guys about this. The American POTUS Podcast is produced by the National Museum of American Presidents. Graphic design by the Thought Bureau. An original music score by Jonathan Clark Music. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes, you can always send us a note at AmericanPOTUS.com. 
or stop by our social pages on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Finally, it's our presidential last word from James K. Polk. Quote, Peace, plenty, and contentment reign throughout our borders, and our beloved country presents a sublime moral spectacle to the world.